Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Fuller. It's a great pleasure to be here at Colorado College, about which I have heard much over the years, but have never had the opportunity to visit before. This is also my first time in Colorado Springs, and uh, what a beautiful uh, place you have here, and thank you for making me feel so welcome uh, in it. On April 8, 2005, uh, my colleague and friend Brian Williams of NBC opened our coverage of the funeral mass of Pope John Paul II uh, with a remarkable phrase. Uh, he said, welcome to the human event of a generation. That the funeral mass of a bishop of Rome would be in fact, the human event of a generation is a very remarkable thing. It was a mere 135 years before, in 1870, as the Garibaldini were closing in on uh, Rome, that the entire student body of the Pontifical North American College, I think there were probably 16 seminarians there at the time, volunteered en masse to join the papal army and repel these heathen invaders here. Pope Pius IX declined their noble offer, uh, instructed the Swiss Guard to, quote, fire one volley for the sake of honor and then to lay down their arms. And when they did so, I think a lot of the world imagined that this institution, which had played such a significant role in the life of the entire world, not simply the Western world, but the entire world, uh, was finished. Uh, and yet, five generations later, uh, a secular major news outlet was welcoming people to the human event of a generation, the funeral of a pope. The history of how we got from that last volley on the Pincian Hill to the human event of a generation is a fascinating one. And in some sense, Carol Wojtyla, Pope John Paul II, was the product of that history. Uh, he was a singular man in many respects. Uh, in the gifts of talent that, with which he was endowed, uh, in a luminous personality, uh, a remarkable drama, the remarkably dramatic life, which if one had tried to make a screenplay out of it would have been rejected as impossibly romantic and uh, impossible indeed. Uh, uh, but he would have insisted that he was the product of the Catholic Church's experience in the 20th century, the experience of the Polish Church in a particular way uh, in the 20th century, and the experience of the Catholic priesthood uh, in the 20th century. Be that as it may, uh, my focus tonight is on the singularity that was uh, Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, and specifically on what seemed to me to be 
the ten enduring accomplishments uh, of his pontificate. Ten uh, achievements that I think we can be reasonably certain uh, someone giving a similar lecture here a uh, hundred years from now will still find in play in the church or the world or both uh, in a significant uh, way. So without further uh, prefatory ado, uh, 10 enduring achievements of Pope John Paul II. The first of these, I think, was to recast the papacy itself for the 21st century and the third millennium by returning it to its evangelical roots. There are many images of Peter in the New Testament. Peter is one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. Peter is the uh, first evangelist of the Gentiles, although Paul later takes over that franchise. He's the center of the church's unity. He's the one around which the first big doctrinal arguments are settled. Uh, he's a missionary. Uh, he's the leader of the church in Antioch. Uh, and he ultimately becomes, uh, according to tradition, the leader of the church in Rome, uh, where he is martyred in, depending on your historian, 63 or 67 AD. In all of those images of Peter, though, what one notices missing is that he's not a manager. He's not the CEO of Catholic Church, Inc., a little up-and-coming religious enterprise <laughs> seeking market share in the Mediterranean world of what we now call the first century. And yet, by the time Carol Wojtyla was elected pope, it was generally thought, both in the church and in the world, that the chief task of the successor of Peter was to be the overseer uh, of the Catholic Church. He was the chief administrator of Roman Catholic Church, Inc., now a global enterprise with a billion uh, members, etc. Moreover, uh, after the difficult pontificate of Paul VI, which ran from 1963 to 1978, a lot of people were asking in 1978 whether anyone could do this job at all, whether it hadn't simply become too overwhelming, too complex, the church had become too diverse and indeed too divided for any man to stand as the center of its unity and be a face of this complex uh, community and institution in the world. Uh, nobody was asking that question on August, uh, April 8th, 2005, because it manifestly was possible and had been done for over a quarter of a century in a way that changed both the history of the world and the history of the church in ways that I will get into in a moment. Uh, the question, though, is how did that happen? And while there are many facets to the answer to that question, uh, I go back to the Mass in St. Peter's in 1996, 
celebrating the 50th anniversary of Carol Wojtyla's ordination to the priesthood, where the antiphon chosen for the responsorial psalm that day was Luke 22:32, And you, Peter, when you have been converted, you must strengthen your brethren. John Paul II took that as a dominical injunction, not simply to Simon, son of John, now known as Peter, but to every one of Peter's successors. And he took it in a very literal way. His task, his first task, as the Bishop of Rome, was not to be the CEO of RC Inc. It was to be the apostle who went around the world strengthening the brethren. And I think in doing that, he revitalized the papacy as an office of evangelical witness for the 21st century in a way that uh, has continued to have uh, effect uh, in the papacy of his successor uh, and will likely have continued effect in the pontificates uh, of uh, the rest of this century. Secondly, and, and here we come to the second achievement, this was done by a pope who was self-consciously the heir of the Second Vatican Council, understood as the council that was summoned by John XXIII to give the church an experience of a new Pentecost, enabling it to enter the third millennium of its history with a new burst of evangelical energy. In 1960, uh, the commission that was preparing the agenda for the Second Vatican Council, which in classic Vatican Gespracht was not called the Preparatory Commission, but the Anti-Preparatory Commission, the Preparatory Commission preparing the Preparatory Commission, wrote all of the bishops of the world and said, the Pope has had this strange idea that we should get all of you guys together. What would you like to talk about? And if you go to a very well-equipped theological library today, perhaps at the seminary in Denver, you can find the answers because the answers to that letter that was sent out to all the bishops of the world formed the first three or four volumes of the ACTA, the official records of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, I once had the occasion to explore this in an archive in Rome and uh, uh, actually found myself bursting out laughing uh, because I had come to the response from then uh, Archbishop Patrick J. O'Boyle of Washington, D.C., who, like most of the bishops, uh, sent in a kind of laundry list of canonical and housekeeping matters that they wanted to see what they all assumed would be a three-months-and-done Second Vatican Council to take up. But somebody must have said to Archbishop O'Boyle, you might look a little you know, better if you would put a big, large question at the end. So O'Boyle does these six or seven canonical, uh, practical things. And then he says, uh, the council should pronounce in light of the doctrines of creation and redemption on the possibility of intelligent life on other planets in alteris planetibus. And I just burst out laughing. And the archivist said, what's so funny? 
And I said, well, I've been living in Washington, D.C. for 15 years, and if I were the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., the first thing I should like to know is about the possibility of intelligent life in my own diocese <laughs> before I worried about intelligent life on other planets. Anyway, so you have these four volumes of the Acta. And while some of them have deeply thought through theological reflections on questions that, that need to be addressed, most of them are, in fact, housekeeping matters, lists of chores that need to be done. In the midst of all of that comes from Krakow, from this then 39-year-old, uh, rising 40-year-old uh, kid auxiliary bishop named Karol Wojtyla, whom no one in Rome has ever heard of. Uh, and he does not send in a laundry list. He sends in a philosophical essay. And the essay asks the question, what on earth has happened to the 20th century. Here is this century which began with a rising tide of expectation about maturing humanity, tutored by science, uh, producing all manner of human flourishing, et cetera, et cetera. And yet within 40 years, uh, this decade produced two world wars, three totalitarian systems, oceans of blood, mountains of corpses, uh, the greatest persecution of Christianity in its history. What happened? And then he answers the question. What happened, he suggests, is that the project of Western humanism had gone off the rails uh, over the past three centuries, such that the centrality of the dignity of the human person had been lost in the general consciousness of the West, and it was the task of the council, he proposed, to revitalize the Western humanistic tradition by lifting up Christ as he who reveals not only the face of the merciful Father, but the truth about our own humanity. So a revitalized Christian humanism as an answer to the crisis of humanism in the broader culture, that's what... Carol Wojtyla thought the Second Vatican Council should do. And that is the optic on the council that he brought to his implementation of the council during his pontificate. When he said at the, in the very first days of his pontificate, the full implementation of the Second Vatican Council will be the program of this pontificate, I think he meant the revitalization of Christian humanism as the answer to the crisis of world civilization at the end of the 20th century and the necessary preparation of the church for its third millennium. The two uh, conciliar texts that are by an order of magnitude cited most frequently in the extensive magisterium teaching of John Paul II are paragraphs 22 and 24 of the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. Uh, 22 says what I just said a minute ago, that Christ reveals 
both the face of the Father and the truth about our humanity. Gaudium et Spes 24 says that human beings come into the full truth about themselves only by making a sincere gift of themselves to others. Now, I suspect, I more than suspect, I virtually know, that Archbishop Carol Wojtyla wrote that 24th paragraph of Gaudium et Spes, the Pastoral Constitution of the Church in the Modern World, during his years as one of the Council Fathers, because that language uh, reflects one of his central philosophical ideas, namely that there is a law of the gift, as he called it, a law of self-giving uh, embedded in the moral structure of the human person, such that we only come to the fulfillment of ourselves by a sincere gift of ourselves to others. And that those two great ideas, Christ reveals the truth about our humanity. The truth of our humanity is that we only become the people we are destined to be if we give ourselves away in the course of, of living out that destiny. I think he thought that was at the center of the message of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, and that was the source of his interpretation of the council uh, for more than uh, the more than 25 years of his pontificate. Those, uh, that view of the church's task in the modern world inspired the next two enduring accomplishments of John Paul II. Uh, number three, his role, his central role, in the collapse of European communism in what we call the revolution of 1989, and four, his challenge to old and new democracies to live freedom nobly in the aftermath of the communist crack-up. As for 1989, this has become virtually a truism in analysis of the history of the Cold War, namely that John Paul II was one of, if not the, pivotal figures in the drama that over a period of a decade and a half saw off the greatest tyranny in human history. Uh, that was an analysis I had the honor to be the first uh, scholar to propose in 1992, and it was in the writing of, uh, that, of a book called The Final Revolution, The Resistance Church and the Collapse of Communism, that I first came into uh, intense personal conversation uh, with John Paul II. Uh, when I published Final Revolution in 1992, the book was met with quite a bit of skepticism from uh, particularly reviewers in international relations, political science, not political philosophy, um, uh, contemporary history, because we all knew that Mikhail Gorbachev was the key guy here, right? And you know, what's this business about the Pope? Well. John Lewis Gaddis, America's premier historian of the Cold War at Yale, uh, simply says point blank in his new history of the Cold War published two years ago, the unraveling of communism began on June 2nd, 1979, when John Paul II kissed the ground at uh, the Warsaw Airport. And that's exactly right. Uh, John is exactly right about that. The nine days of John Paul II 
June 2nd to uh, 10th, uh, 1980, uh, 1979, were days on which the history of the 20th century pivoted uh, in a dramatic way. He did this not by talking politics, not by talking economics. He did it by giving back to his Polish people the truth about themselves. He gave them back the truth about their identity and their culture, and in doing that, he gave them tools of resistance that totalitarianism simply could not match. Uh, he ignited, if you will, a revolution of conscience that led uh, within 13 brief months to the rise of the Solidarity Movement in the Gdansk shipyards in the summer of, uh, late summer of 1980, uh, which itself was the trigger for what became a nonviolent political revolution throughout uh, Central uh, and Eastern Europe. Uh, and in doing all of this, uh, he uh, taught uh, the entire world an important lesson, that conscience can be that Archimedean point from which you can lever real change uh, in history. Uh, Father Joseph Tischner, an old friend of John Paul II's and a friend of mine, a distinguished Polish philosopher, uh, once said that solidarity was a giant forest planted by aroused consciences. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, image, uh, and I think it's the truth uh, of the matter. 1989 uh, was a remarkable phenomenon at the end of a century soaked in blood. Uh, dramatic and positive uh, political change came uh, not through the normal 20th century method of massive social change, namely massive bloodletting, but with the exception of Romania, uh, through uh, a nonviolent uh, process that has left in its wake reasonably secure democracies throughout the old uh, Warsaw Pact. Uh, and the Pope was at the center of that. He wasn't the only figure by any manner of means. He worked within his soft power, if you will, worked within a hard power context set by Western policy, and particularly the policies of President Reagan, uh, Prime Minister Thatcher, and German Chancellor Kohl. But if you ask why did 1989 happen when it did, rather than 1999 or 2009 or 2019 or whatever, and why did it happen the way it did, without the kind of catastrophic uh, conflict? that had characterized the rest of the 20th century. I think you have to go back to 1979 and to those nine days in Poland in June of 79, which really were uh, one of the most remarkable periods uh, in the 20th century. And of course, at the center of all that was John Paul II. However, uh, unlike others who in fits of euphoria uh, after 1989, uh, began to talk about the end of history and the settling of all of the great questions uh, of uh, the organization of, of human life. Uh, John Paul II quickly discerned new threats to uh, the free and virtuous society in the notions that democracy and the free economy, democracy and the market, were essentially mechanisms that could run by themselves. 
All you had to do was get the mechanics right, put the key in the ignition, turn it over, and the machinery would run by itself. This did not seem to him to make a great deal of sense. He understood in a remarkable intuition for a man who had never lived under either a democratic political regime uh, or a free market economy in his entire life. Uh, he intuited correctly that it takes a certain kind of people possessed of certain virtues to make democracy and the market work so that free politics and free economics produce human flourishing, not simply human self-aggrandizement uh, or human degradation. And in a series of documents, beginning with the great encyclical Centesimus Annus of 1991, he sketched out uh, in a way that remains remarkably uh, salient to our own uh, moment in history almost 20 years later the moral and cultural foundations of the free society, uh, insisting that freedom's most secure foundation is the recognition of the dignity of every human person as the bearer of rights endowed uh, by God. Uh, this insistence on the, centrality, on the centrality of the human person, the dignity of the human person the inalienable right to life of the human person from conception until natural death, uh, added elements to the contemporary discussion of democratic theory that had lain fallow uh, for many, many uh, years uh, previously, uh, and I think have uh, helped us identify uh, precisely the nature of the fault lines uh, within both the established democracies of the West, uh, the new democracies of Central and East, within the new democracies of Central and Eastern Europe, and indeed within the whole democratic sphere in the world uh, as a whole. Now, that Christian humanism of the Second Vatican Council also inspired three other uh, enduring accomplishments of the pontificate of John Paul II. Uh, the first of these, number five, if you're keeping score here, uh, was to position the quest for Christian unity at the heart of the Catholic Church's self-understanding. After the initial ecumenical euphoria in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, which concluded in 1965, and all things seemed possible, uh, within less than a decade, there had been a tremendous cooling off of ecumenical ardor uh, among church professionals, if you will, and among the uh, Catholics in the pews, uh, who had never been terribly excited about all of this, uh, it simply became another interesting part of this new church that was emerging. But the notion that the quest for Christian unity, the imperative to live in that unity which Christ bequeathed to his church, ought to be at the center of Catholic self-consciousness really did not penetrate most Catholics' lives. Ecumenism was like dessert. I mean, it tastes good, makes you feel good, uh, 
pleasant to have, uh, but it's not meat and potatoes. Uh, John Paul II had a totally different view of this, itself interesting, because the nature of religious demographics in Poland uh, do not lend themselves to a lot of ecumenical experience. Uh, there's a nice Lutheran church right down the street from uh, Wawel uh, Cathedral in Krakow. Uh, there were a few uh, Methodists in town. Uh, the last thing Karol Wojtyla did as Archbishop of Krakow before he left for the conclave that elected him Pope was to give permission for Billy Graham to preach in St. Mary's Collegiate Church, uh, the university church of the Jagiellonian University, to conduct one of his uh, crusades there. But this was not a pope deeply steeped in ecumenical experience, uh, simply by the nature of where he lived. And yet, over 25 plus years, he did more to position Catholicism at the center of the quest for Christian unity than any pope since the fracture of the uh, Christian West in the 16th century, the fracture between Christian West and Christian East at the beginning of the second millennium. Moreover, he did this uh, in a way that bespoke a great commitment to unity in truth. In the spring, uh, early spring of 1995, the then head of the World Council of Churches, or General Secretary of the World Council of Churches, a former East German uh, evangelical Lutheran pastor named Konrad Reiser, uh, came to Rome and gave a lecture at a major Roman ecumenical center called the Centro per Unione, which I don't need to translate, I don't think. Uh, and Reiser gave a remarkable speech in which he said, look, the old ecumenism which began in the Protestant world with the Edinburgh Missionary Conference of uh, 1910 or 11, uh, which the Catholic Church entered uh, in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, this notion that we can recompose the unity of Christianity around a common creed uh, a common ministry and a common sacramental system, that's, that's over. It's never going to happen. Uh, and by the way, it's not important. It's not important because what's really important is preventing the degradation of the environment, building world peace, taking care of poor people throughout the world, etc. All this truth stuff is, you know, interesting for academics but doesn't really get us anywhere and can't get us anywhere. Very interesting statement from the General Secretary of the World Council of Churches. Ecumenism is over, uh, at least as we have understood it for almost a century. Uh, it was an accident, but a happy accident, that within two months of that remarkable lecture by Dr. Reiser, uh, John Paul II issued the first uh, encyclical, uh, highest form of papal teaching document on ecumenism in the history of the church. It was called Ut Unum Sint, that they may be one, obviously from the high priestly prayer of Christ uh, at the Last Supper in John's Gospel. Uh, 
And it was a powerful meditation on the imperative of Christian unity for the witness of the church in the world, the imperative of the pursuit of Christian unity in order to be faithful to the command of the Lord, uh, and the imperative to pursue unity in truth because the only unity worth pursuing is unity in the truth which Christ also bequeathed his church uh, as, a final, uh, as a final gift. Now, I think it has to be said that this facet of John Paul's extensive set of initiatives uh, was largely frustrated. It was frustrated within Western Christianity because of the, frankly, chaotic doctrinal situation that one finds in most of the uh, churches of the Reformation uh, traditions uh, these days. And it was frustrated East and West because it, it may have been the case that the Pope had not sufficiently measured uh, the degree to which the notion, I am not in communion with the Bishop of Rome, had entered into the very self-understanding of what it means to be an Orthodox, capital O, Christian, for many Orthodox people. Uh, in Ut Unum Sint, uh, in that 1995 encyclical, the Pope made a remarkable proposal to Eastern Orthodoxy. He essentially said, why can't we go back to the status quo ante 1054? when the breach between Constantinople and Rome was formalized. Why can't we go back to a situation where, in which, in other words, the Bishop of Rome is understood as the final uh, court of appeal, the Supreme Court, if you will, on questions of doctrine, but makes no jurisdictional claims in the East. You guys can you know, run your own lives as you did for a thousand years. It was a very bold proposal. It was a very noble proposal. It got virtually zero response. Uh, I think because of that problem of what had happened over the, the ensuing millennium, uh, which, is, which is in a sense odd. I mean, I don't know a single Catholic whose self-consciousness includes as a primary, secondary, tertiary uh, phenomenon or, or uh, conviction, the notion I am not in full communion with the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople. I mean, it just never occurs to anybody. And yet it occurs to many, many Orthodox, including clergy and bishops, that the statement I am not in communion with full communion with the Bishop of Rome is an essential part of their self-understanding. Because th that's something that developed over a thousand years and that the Pope might not have sufficiently measured. However, the offer is there, and as orthodoxy, particularly uh, in uh, Europe, which is where most of it is located, uh, increasingly finds itself an island of Christianity in a roiling Islamic sea, uh, perhaps the offer will begin to be considered in a, in a more, uh, uh, frankly, open-minded way. Uh, than was uh, the case during the pontificate of John Paul II. Uh, the sixth enduring achievement uh, of the popes uh, is the one for which virtually everyone, including 
some of his harshest critics gave him uh, full marks. And that was his extraordinary accomplishment in putting the relationship between the Catholic Church and living Judaism uh, on an entirely different uh, footing, uh, an entirely different path. And that's true. Yet I don't think on either side of that important dialogue, in which I've been privileged to participate for many years, uh, outside of very few enclaves of conversation, I'm not sure it's understood by either the Jewish uh, dialogue partners or the Catholic dialogue partners uh, the degree to which the Pope uh, hoped this conversation would take a radically new direction. Much of Jewish-Christian dialogue in the period between the Second Vatican Council and the pontificate of John Paul II was aimed at clearing up uh, ancient historical problems and misunderstandings, at creating societies in which uh, Jews could feel at home and unthreatened in dealing with uh, enduring problems of anti-Semitism and intolerance, etc. The accomplishments of all of that, John Paul II, who had a unique personal experience of the Jewish tragedy of the 20th century, having lost many of his own friends to the Holocaust. Uh, with those accomplishments, he was in full agreement. But he thought that was not the goal of this whole process. That was a way of clearing out the underbrush of history so that we could get to the real conversation, which was a theological conversation. How is it that these two communities which claim Abraham as their father in faith, which share the Decalogue as their fundamental moral code, can be together light to the nations in the third millennium of Christian history. Was it possible, he was bold enough to suggest, that the conversation between Christians and Jews broken off about 70 A.D., during the first Jewish war in uh, then Palestine, Roman Palestine, uh, the parting of the ways, as it's often called, when what became rabbinic Judaism began to take its form and what became the Christian church began to take its settled form. Why can't we go back, uh, John Paul II was suggesting, to that abruptly and tragically foreshortened conversation and begin to talk again about the things that really matter, like election, like covenant, like chosenness, like common moral responsibility for uh, the good of the world. That was an exceptionally bold proposal. It has been picked up in some fashion in North America, primarily in the conversations that the late Father Richard John Newhouse built at the Institute on Religion and Public Life in New York over 20 years, where one of our uh, rabbinic partners in that conversation, uh, a very distinguished uh, Jewish scholar, uh, said one evening, uh, you know, 
you guys probably don't realize this, but we are talking together as Jews and Christians have not talked for more than 1,900 years. That was a very, very moving and, and touching statement. And I think it's that kind of theological conversation uh, that John Paul II wished to uh, facilitate uh, as the real goal uh, of his extraordinary initiatives in putting the relationship between Catholicism and Judaism uh, on an entirely new uh, footing. Uh, and I think that will come uh, in time. It's probably going to come first here uh, because uh, the Jewish community in America feels secure enough here to engage in that kind of uh, conversation. Uh, it's unlikely to come uh, in the Middle East for some pretty obvious reasons at the moment. Um, but it, it is coming, and it's due in large part to his initiative and his example. This is closely related to the seventh uh, enduring <clears throat> accomplishment of the, uh, of the Pope, which was to put the church's conversation both with other world religions and with science on a new and more secure foundation, uh, namely a foundation of conversation, excuse me, aimed at the mutual clarification of truth. Carol Wojtyla, the philosopher, had come by the mid-1950s to the settled view, which he thought he could demonstrate by real philosophical argument, that all truths from whatever source, literary, philosophical, theological, historical, scientific, mathematical, all of these truths incline towards that one capital T truth, who is God. And therefore, believers in the one true God should not be afraid of or made nervous by what is genuinely true, no matter what its source. No matter what its source. This enabled him to clear out a lot of the rubbish that had built up in 400 years of history between the Catholic Church and the developments of modern science. It also enabled him to put into religious dialogue the Church's conversation with Islam, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, uh, the other great Asian religions, and indeed the world of secularity uh, on a new uh, and different uh, basis. John Paul II was a man of great tolerance. This was uh, often noted at the time of his death. And yet he did not understand tolerance as a matter of ignoring differences as if differences didn't count. Rather, tolerance, which as he knew came from the Latin deponent verb tolerare, to bear with, uh, tolerance meant engaging differences engaging the differences that make the difference without uh, descending uh, into uh, barbarism, to engage the differences that make the difference within a bond of civility and respect for the other's search for the truth and the fragments of truth that all uh, of us 
bring to the uh, bring to the conver uh, conversation. Uh, this seems to me uh, a remarkably fruitful pattern of understanding for the church's conversation with science, for the church's conversation with philosophy, uh, for the church's conversation with other religious traditions uh, for the future. We can't bracket the question of truth. We ought to mutually approach the question of what is true uh, in the calm certainty that if it is true, uh, it eventually uh, will point us towards uh, the capital T truth who is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The eighth uh, enduring accomplishment of the pontificate of John Paul II uh, was perhaps the most surprising. Uh, after the enormous difficulties experienced within the church, after the 1968 encyclical Humanae Vitae on the morally appropriate means of regulating uh, human fertility, uh, it was largely thought, and not only in the secular world, but in the church itself, that the Catholic Church really had nothing of interest to say to the tremendous uproar that had been caused by the sexual revolution throughout uh, the Western world. John Paul II did not believe that that was the case. He saw in the sexual revolution and particularly its reduction of women to uh, instruments uh, of male pleasure, uh, another assault on human dignity. And he wanted to respond to that. He came to Rome uh, for the conclave of 1978, where he certainly did not expect and most certainly did not want to be elected pope, with the outlines of a new book he was going to write, in which he was going to take the creation stories of, of Genesis and use them as the basis for creating a whole new way to explicate the Catholic Church's sexual ethic, its appreciation of human sexual differentiation, its deep respect for the communion that is built into the very fact of human sexual differentiation, and to lay out on the basis of a positive appraisal of human love, uh, the church's uh, sexual ethic. Well, he didn't get what he expected out of that conclave. He got the papacy. But never being a good scholar and never one to waste a good outline, uh, he proceeded to turn that outline into the first of four clusters of papal general audience addresses which, taken together, compose what is referred to as John Paul II's theology of the body. This is an extraordinarily bold and imaginative exploration of uh, our reality as sexually differentiated beings, uh, an extraordinarily sensitive exploration of the dynamics uh, of human love, uh, all starting from ancient biblical texts. Genesis, I mentioned, that mysterious passage in Ephesians where Paul talks about Christ's love for the church being a spousal love. Uh, the very curious 
interesting, challenging statement of Jesus to the Sadducees that um, in heaven they are not given in marriage. What's that all about? Um, if you've not had the chance to explore this body of work, uh, let me invite you to do so. It's perhaps the single most imaginative explication uh, or response, I should say, to uh, the sexual revolution's reduction of human sexuality to simple, simply another contact sport uh, that has ever been uh, articulated. And it is a remarkable philosophical response to the reduction of gender difference, to use the euphemism, to a matter of plumbing. Uh, there was something about both of those phenomena, the Pope thought, that was deeply degrading to everybody. Uh, this was, and, and, and I think this, this is perhaps worth reflecting on a moment. How did he come to this? He came to this because the most formative experience of his young priesthood was working with college students. If you had asked any pope of the previous 200 years to tell you about his first experiences in the priesthood, the pope in question would tell you about teaching in a seminary, uh, studying at the Vatican's uh, school for its diplomats, uh, perhaps a first diplomatic assignment abroad. If you asked John Paul II what was the most formative experience of your first decade in the priesthood, uh, he would basically answer hanging out with kids. Uh, he was a university chaplain in Krakow, uh, and as he helped mold these young lives into mature Christian young men and women, they were helping to mold him into the, one of the most dynamic young priests of his time. And as these young people who are now not so young, uh, some of them are in their early 80s, some of them are in their 70s, some of them are in their mid-60s, some of them have become very close friends of uh, mine, uh, have explained this to me. Uh, the really crucial moments in all of this was when they were preparing for marriage, uh, which he helped them to do. And then as they were settling into marriage and uh, raising young families, this was, this was the real material of his pastoral life. So he knew these problems from the inside, uh, which is why you have, I think, the answer to the question of how did this lifelong celibate have such remarkable insight into the dynamics of human love? And the answer was because he had worked with people working through all of these questions for, uh, for many, many uh, years. So the theology of the body is, in intellectual terms, I think likely to be uh, one of the most enduring of the enduring accomplishments of John Paul II. Uh, and in general cultural terms, aside from what this uh, has done to give the church a new grip on the truths of its ancient moral teaching, in general cultural terms, it has given all of us uh, a response to the regnant, regnant Gnosticism of our time, which denies 
the meaning of embodiedness as purely an accident of evolutionary biology, uh, out of which have come uh, many demons whose name is Legion. Uh, this is a very sacramental view of uh, the embodiedness of men and women, uh, a, a conviction that in the Catholic sacramental imagination, the extraordinary lies just on the far side of the ordinary. And that conviction is what undergirds, uh, ultimately, uh, this uh, remarkable proposal uh, called John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Ninth, uh, the Catholic Church was in a condition of some doctrinal and certainly catechetical chaos for 20 years after the Second Vatican Council. Uh, it was unclear what the boundaries of doctrine and morals were, and it was very unclear how one passed the faith along to subsequent generations. One of the great inspirations of John Paul II was to call a synod of bishops to mark the 20th anniversary of the completion of Vatican II. The synod met in 1985. And one of the great products of that synod was the catechism of the Catholic Church, the first time that the universal church had taken upon itself the task of putting between two covers what it believed, how it thought we ought to live, and how, it, how and why it prayed since the 16th century. Now, for John Paul II, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which was published in 1992, uh, was not simply a response to this somewhat chaotic doctrinal and catechetical situation of the previous two and a half decades. The catechism, rather, was really about the future. In thinking about John Paul II, uh, one can never take out of the center of one's analysis the Jubilee year of 2000. This was, he would say, the key to his entire pontificate, and it's certainly the key to the catechism, because he felt it was terribly important that at the end of two millennia of Christian history, the Catholic Church ought to be able to give an account of what it believed, how it tried to live, and how it prayed. It was important to be able to give a comprehensive, coherent, compelling account, not only to the church, but to the world. You know, here we are at the end of 2,000 years of this, heading into a new millennium. Here's what we think. Here's how we try to live. Here's how we pray. Quite striking that no other Christian community at the end of 2,000 years of Christian history thought that was important. But this pope did, and he has given the church now a clearer sense of where the boundaries are, but more importantly, uh, a program of belief, of practice, of prayer uh, that is 
clearly intended to energize the church for an evangelical uh, moment of great power in the, uh, in the uh, 21st century. Again, in broader cultural terms, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is important because in a time of fragmented knowledge, uh, the idea that you really can't put every, anything really together, diffuse methodologies, diffuse subject matters, uh, all the rest of it. Uh, not to mention the postmodernist notion that there's your truth and my truth, but nothing that is probably properly describable as the truth. The Catholic Church, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, not boastfully, not arrogantly, but in fact quite humbly, says we think we can put together what we believe, how we think we ought to live, and how we pray. That's no small cultural artifact for 20% of humanity to be able to have uh, in its possession at this moment in the cultural history, particularly of the West. And then finally, and tenth, um, the enduring accomplishment of John Paul II uh, involves the extraordinary personal inspiration that he gave literally tens of millions of people uh, around the world. I mean, I could stand up here for the next three days telling stories of uh, people who have told me their stories uh, of how, uh, how this pope uh, changed their lives. Uh, everybody from a New York City street cop who's now a third-year seminarian for the Archdiocese of New York to a German baroness uh, raised in a kind of uh, uh, intellectually sterile Catholic environment uh, now completing doctoral uh, studies in the Bible in order to take up uh, evangelical work in Europe. Uh, priests, sisters, married couples, the list is virtually uh, endless. Um, what was that all about? I think it has something to do with what, oddly enough, an unconverted, unreconstructed, old-fashioned Marxist once said, uh, Milovan Gilas, the uh, uh, Yugoslavian dissident. I mean, he was a dissident in the sense that he didn't like Tito. Uh, he was not a dissident in the sense that he ever disentangled himself philosophically from Marxism. But Gilas was a great fan of John Paul II. And he once said um, that the reason for that was that the Pope was a man without fear uh, in a century uh, marked by fear. And I think that's both right and wrong. It's not so much that John Paul II was a man without fear so much as he was a man who lived beyond fear. Uh, and he could live beyond fear and therefore inspire others to a similar post-fear, new form of fearlessness. Why? Because of his faith. Because he absolutely believed with every fiber of his being that on Good Friday, the Son of God, who was also the Son of Mary, had taken all the world's fear upon himself 
and had offered that to the father in a perfect act of self-sacrifice. And that the father had given his answer to that in raising Jesus from the dead on Easter Sunday. Therefore, those who had configured themselves to that self-sacrifice of the son could live beyond fear uh, because they had been empowered, been empowered to do that by the mystery of the resurrection. And that brings us, I think, at the end to the, the real center of the truth about, about Karol Wojtyla. He was many things. He was a world-class intellectual. Uh, he was a wonderful human being, great uh, company. Uh, he was a gifted poet. Uh, he was a man of uh, mystical spirituality. Uh, he was a very good skier, um, a man of robust sense of humor, man of relentless curiosity. Uh, beneath all of that and at the center of all of that was a radically converted Christian disciple. Uh, and if you, uh, from the point of view of a Christian believer, a member of the Catholic Church, or a non-believer, uh, wish to assay, uh, to measure uh, the source of his impact on the history of our times, then you have to take seriously the fact that that was the reactor core uh, of this personality, was the depth of his uh, uh, Christian uh, discipleship. Uh, and that's a very, very interesting phenomenon uh, at the end of the 20th, 20th century uh, and the beginning of the 21st. Thank you very much. Winded than expected, but uh, only one person headed for the exit, so that's not uh, that's not bad. I think we got time for a few uh, questions. Yes, sir. Uh, how close of a relationship did John Paul II have with uh, Cardinal Ratzinger? Everybody hear that? Yeah, relationship between John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, they never met before the first conclave of '78. They had been exchanging books uh, since 1974, uh, interestingly enough, through the mediation of the German philosopher Joseph Pieper, who was the guy who put the two of them uh, together. Um, when um, when uh, Wojtyla was elected, uh, he said during the week between the election and the so-called inaugural mass, he said to Ratzinger, now we'll have to have you down here. And Ratzinger said, you can't do it. I've only been in Munich for two years. I need some more time. Uh, at, at that point, apparently, the Pope's intention was to make him the head of the Congregation for Catholic Education. So the Pope said, okay, you know, but I've got your phone number. Um, uh, four years later, three years later, um, when Ratzinger was offered the job of prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, he, as he put it to me, I just, you know, I couldn't say no twice. And I think he probably thought he was more fit for the CDF job than for trying to ride herd on Catholic universities, which 
it's not an easy job. Um, uh, three times uh, he tried to resign. Um, and three times the Pope told him, uh, in effect, I can't do this without you. Um, they were very different personalities, obviously. Uh, Ratzinger was a much more accomplished theologian than, than John Paul II, who was not a theological dummy, but I mean, Ratzinger was a walking theological encyclopedia, um, recognized as such by everybody. Um, there was enormous, I think, respect by, uh, in both directions. Uh, I think Ratzinger saw in the Pope's public personality something that he could never be, but something that was good uh, in itself. And I think the Pope trusted Ratzinger's judgment on uh, you know, certain very neuralgic questions uh, about how he should conduct the teaching exercise of, of his office. Uh, so it was a quite remarkable uh, relationship. That this was a relationship between a Pole and a German uh, adds a certain interesting flavor to the thing uh, as well. Um, uh, I wouldn't say they were buddies, uh, but they were, they there was an enormous respect and mutual affection. Uh, and it's, it's not without interest <laughs> that the most consequential pope in 500 years thought he really couldn't do what he ought to do without this particular personality uh, at his side. Yes. Uh, everybody hear that? Got it? Um, uh, the, answer, the short answer is no, because the Panzer Cardinal thing was a ridiculous caricature from the beginning. I mean, I've actually known Pope Benedict longer than I knew John Paul II. Uh, my conversation with Joseph Ratzinger began in 1988, uh, which was a few years before my direct conversation with John Paul II. Uh, I've always known him to be a shy um, man of exquisite manners um, who um, uh, uh, had a deep pastoral sense. Uh, so no, none of that is a surprise. In fact, I remember uh, Brian Williams had gone home, so I, who, I guess it was Lester Holt was the anchor at the time we were on what we used to call smoke watch during the conclave. And I remember saying, I think this was off camera, after we had done, you know, he comes out and ba-doop, ba-doop, ba-doop. And I remember saying to Lester and others on the platform, um, I think the world's now going to see the guy I've known for uh, 17 uh, years, as it was at that point. And there's going to be a lot of surprise at this. Uh, so I think that's, you know, I think that's the way that, 
panned out. There was a funny moment in that which illustrates that while technology moves ahead, Italians remain Italians. Uh, <clears throat> there had been a huge confusione in, in 78 because somebody had messed up mixing the chemicals in with the ballots so that this is at the Voitiwa election. So the smoke came out not white, not black, but gray. <laughs> All these people saying, egregio, egregio, Kiko say egregio. Um, so this time there was going to be, we're, we're not taking any chances. So in addition to the smoke signal, there was going to be the bells were going to ring. The bells had not rung since the death of the Pope. So they're going to ring the bells in St. Peter's. So there's a guy with a cell phone at the pot-bellied stove. And there's a guy with a cell phone up in the bell tower. What could go wrong? <laughs> Smoke comes up at, I don't know, whatever it was, 4.30 or something. Uh, we are live on the air at that point. Um, I said, and, and smoke is great. And I said, a pope has been elected. And everybody's looking at me like, you crazy? What is this? I mean, it's gray. I said, given the, the way the balloting is organized, any smoke signal right now must mean that there has been an election. But what about the bells? I said, remember where we are. <laughs> so there's this nine-minute thing in which I am absolutely certain that, you know, somebody has been elected. They found Brian Williams in Oklahoma City. He was there for the Mirage Center anniversary. So he's now patched in. So are you sure? This? Yeah, I said, yeah, I'm absolutely sure. That's why you guys pay me the not-so-big bucks, you know, to be, <laughs> to be sure about this stuff. And then finally, it's white. And we're still waiting for the damn bells. <laughs> The next day, I, found, I said to a high-ranking Vatican official, what the hell happened? He said, remember where we are. <laughs> the guy with the cell phone at the stove forgot to call the guy at the cell phone <laughs> at the bell tower. Great moments in covering papal elections. It was actually an even funnier one Conclave was immured on a Monday evening. Saturday, um, uh, Joaquin Navarro, John Paul II's uh, press spokesman, had taken whoever wanted to go from the world media on a tour of the Sistine Chapel, which had been reconfigured for the election. You know, with the little throne set up and the tables and all this stuff. And they had built a false floor about nine inches off the terrazzo floor of the chapel, under which was all the jamming equipment, because there was real concern that somebody with a microwave microphone or something would try to snoop. So they got they built this false floor. They've got tons of wires and God knows what all underneath there. So Joaquin says, you know, this is it. We've got all this stuff. Nobody's going to be able to you know, snoop. And if any of you think that's not true, I invite you to take out your cell phones and call your offices, which three smart Alex do, 
and they get through to their offices. <laughs> so with 48 hours to go, they had to rip out the whole thing <laughs> and start all over again. Uh, and as far as I know, you know, nobody got got the goods here. Yes, this lady here, I think you had something? Yeah. Well, in one sense, the most memorable was in Cuba. I had uh, gone down there with Cardinal O'Connor and a large group from New York, and um, uh, obviously we're staying in Havana. Uh, but the mass the second day of the visit was in Camagüey, which is about 400 miles east of Havana. Cuba is a very big place. I mean, Americans have no idea how long Cuba is. Uh, so they've been you know, 400, 300, 400 miles away. So uh, somebody had arranged for Cardinal O'Connor the use of what had been described to us as a, quote, Cuban executive jet. This was, in fact, a late flowering of Soviet aerospace technology called a Yak-40. The door did not close flush with the fuselage. The bulkhead was made of linoleum. Three of the seat belts pulled out when we tried to put them on. This was a total nightmare. But it got us to Camagüey. This was a mess for young people, so it was a big, you know, whoop de doo And I had maneuvered my way to the front of the platform so I could see both the kids and, and see what what was going on here, and see, see the Pope. At the end of this mass, there was this huge scrum as people are trying to get out, and I got separated from the rest of the O'Connor party. And, I mean separated. And I thought, I really don't want to spend the rest of my life in Camagüey, Cuba. Um, so I thought, if I start walking out the road that we came in on, somebody will figure it, look around on the bus and say, where the hell is George? And yeah, we were going to find him. Um, while I'm walking out in joyful hope, waiting for them to notice that I'm missing, over the rise of the hill comes the Pope Mobile. And it's just the driver and the pope and his secretary, Bishop Javish. And they're both pointing at me and laughing their heads off <laughs> as I'm walking down this dirt road to nowhere. I was at dinner with them about a month later, and I said, thanks for the ride, boys. <laughs> that was <laughs> very kind of you to stop. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I mean, we we talked about so many things, and there were so many different kinds of memories. Um, uh, I mean, seeing him at the western wall of the temple in Jerusalem in March 2000 was uh, an unforgettable business. Um, uh, the last time I saw him... Uh, Bishop Sheridan will be interested in this, uh, 
was December 14th, 2004, uh, six weeks before we went into the hospital. And we had, we had, over the years, had formed this habit of having dinner together 10 days, two weeks before Christmas. So I had brought him as a Christmas present uh, something he liked, which was a, he liked big photo books. I think it got the poet's imagination going. And particularly books of nature. So I had schlepped over there this huge book of national parks of the United States. And he was a guy who believed in opening his Christmas presents when he got them. <laughs> so I hand him this thing, and he opens this thing. And then um, Javish or somebody else is looking through the table of contents, and the Pope looks down and says, and they open it, and it's Rocky Mountain National Park. The Pope looks at this, and he says, Rocky Mountain National Park, Denver, 1993, World Youth Day. Bishops of the United States said it couldn't be done. I prove them wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was still cooking on, uh, on, uh, on that one. Um, so, there, I mean, there are a lot of... A lot of stories, obviously. Yeah, Martin Nussbaum. Uh, when the Pope began to fail, he did so very publicly. He continued to have public appearances and so on, unlike most world leaders. Yeah. How self-conscious was that in, in being visible to all of us that he was going to I think it was very self-conscious in that he believed that he ought to carry out the mission that he had been given till he couldn't do it anymore. Uh, he was also, I think, not unaware, although this was not, I don't think, a primary motivation, that by displaying himself in his uh, weakness, um, he was giving an extraordinarily valuable witness to the value of other lives, perhaps no, not so dramatically positioned as him, uh, as his, but which people might be tempted to think of as burdensome, useless, whatever. Uh, and he was very aware of, of living publicly in solidarity with the sick and the disabled and uh, whatnot. Um, the only time I saw in him in that um, uh, a real struggle for acceptance was uh, on the 25th anniversary of the pontificate in, in October 2003. Uh, Polish public television was going to do a uh, two-hour-long special uh, on JP2, anchored from Rome, from the Sala Clementina of the Apostolic Palace, uh, with four live sites in Poland. And I got this fax inviting me to be one of the talking heads from the, from the Rome uh, anchor site. And I didn't know whether this was serious or not, so I called Archbishop Jewish, or sent him a fax, I guess, and said, you know, should I do this? And comes back the answer, it would be appreciated if you were here. 
That's the polite way of saying, get your butt over here. <laughs> so I got my butt over there. And um, this was the diplomatic corps. I mean, there was a, there was a live audience. There were uh, three or four cardinals, Rocco Butiglione and me, were the chattering class at, at this. But the, there was a live audience of you know, a lot of the diplomatic corps credited to the Holy See, a lot of the curia. And to kind of keep people occupied while they were waiting for the show to start, uh, there was a Polish youth choir had been brought in and was singing in the back of the uh, Clementina. Uh, the upper uh, story of the Sala Clementina uh, connects to the papal apartment. Indeed, the windows in the chapel of the papal apartment open. You can look down into the Sala Clementina. So the Pope, somebody must have kept the windows open. The Pope was not going to come to any of this. There was going to be a live feed of this up to his apartment, but he wasn't going to show. But um, suddenly, with 10 minutes to go, uh, before the program was on, uh, he comes in because he had heard these kids singing, and he wanted to come down and thank the kids. So he does that. And then he decides he wants to greet the talking heads. So I am, by orders of magnitude, the junior subaltern in this group. So I put myself at the back of the queue. And I have to say, the, the look in his eyes, I mean, the face was just, it was in one of those periods where it was just frozen. He couldn't make anything happen. Uh, and, and the look in those piercing blue eyes. I mean, you're like, look what has happened to me um, as he tried to reach out and take my hand. was just heart-rending. We, now we got two minutes to go to showtime, and I'm, the waterworks are starting, and it's time to get a grip here. But that was the only time I can remember uh, seeing him in a you know, in a really tough place uh, in terms of, of, of getting to grip with this. Now, I, uh, I didn't mention, but um, since it's late and we should probably close down here in a minute, I'll take the moment for a cheesy advertisement here. The uh, second volume of my biography of John Paul II uh, will be published in September. Uh, it completes the story. It deepens the story of the Pope versus communism. There's a long analysis uh, uh, of his life and accomplishment. And in that book, um, uh, I have an account of that uh, moment, which fits in with what I think was his last real dark night, which was the summer of uh, 2003 uh, into the fall of 2003. Uh, he was supposed to have an operation to deal with this terrible arthritis in his knees. Uh, it was decided that just, you just can't put a guy with this advanced state of Parkinson's under general anesthesia, so he couldn't get rid of the pain and the knees was gone. It was infernally hot at Castel Gandolfo to the point where he couldn't even use the pool. I mean, it was, I think, the last dark night of this disciple of, of John of the Cross. 
and I think that extended into the into the fall, uh, and that oddly enough intersected with that you know silver anniversary. But you know, six weeks later, I was back for the pre-Christmas uh, dinner, and you know he had clearly bounced back and was in robust good humor and uh, whatnot. But um, no, he had uh, moments of struggle like uh, like anyone. Maybe one more, and then Tim will call it a night. Yes, sir. Will history judge him the great? Well, I think the people of the church already have. Um, and I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, uh, uh, you know, that, that cry rang out on April 8th, 2005. I had actually kind of prepped my colleagues for that. I said, you know, the last time something like this happened was in uh, 604. So, uh, you know, I think we call this breaking news here in this business. <laughs> First time something's happened in 1,400 years, you know. Um, uh, and, then it, and then it happened. And I have to say that it was so loud. I mean, between the Santo Subito and the Magno and the Magnus and all this business. That you, I mean, we were up on the Janicolo, on the, above St. Peter's Square, and you could clearly hear it up there. I mean, it was just reverberating around in a, in a very uh, dramatic uh, way. But, you know, but as you know, those titles, Gregory the Great, Leo the Great, you know, th th those are spontaneous expressions of popular sentiment. They're not, you know, there's not some um, process that you go through to, to, uh, to get uh, that. But I, yeah, I mean, I... I think that's more likely than not. And it seems to me, although I clearly have a dog in the fight, uh, <laughs> I mean, it seems to me a very apt and appropriate, uh, appropriate uh, thing. Uh, thank you all very much for coming. I notice some of you have books. I would be happy to assign them if we could somehow figure out a way to get me at a table, because that's going to... Maybe we just move a chair over there, and if you have books to be signed, I'd be happy to do it. Thank you all very much. I think Dr. Fuller.